We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast that focuses on the intersection of pop culture and Judaism, how our understanding and appreciation of Judaism, Jewish ethics and values and texts of our tradition impact our understanding of pop culture and how pop culture is infused in the Torah that we learn, the Torah that we live. As always, I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky, joined by... Rabbi Michael Knopf. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the new Amazon Prime series, Hunters. Uh, Hunters is an alternative reality, a show that takes place in the late 70s, when, and focuses on a group of Nazi hunters in America, in New York, that hunt down uh, Nazis that are alive and hiding in America in the 70s. But before we talk about that show, Mike, I heard you have a new book that just came out. I do. Yeah, it's my first book ever. It's called 30 Days of Liberation. Uh, it is a series of short reflections and meditations on um, the Passover story uh, and on the uh, text traditions and symbols of the Passover holiday. Uh, it's uh, 30 days because it's based on this teaching uh, that we're supposed to start studying for Passover uh, 30 days before the holiday in order to prepare ourselves for Passover, uh, spiritually, morally, uh, uh, emotionally prepare ourselves uh, to uh, see ourselves, as the Haggadah on Passover says, see ourselves as if we are personally leaving Egypt. So um, it's got six chapters uh, with 30 readings each, uh, and uh, readers can take one uh, chapter over the course of the 30 days before Passover uh, and uh, reflect on a meditation a day uh, or kind of skip around and choose your own spiritual adventure and find 30 readings. You can use it uh, leading up to the Passover season. Uh, Christians uh, would, might find it meaningful during the Lent season leading up to Easter, uh, but it really, I think, has the potential to be uh, meaningful and useful all year long. Uh, the Exodus story has been the master narrative for movements of liberation throughout history and has been um, a, uh, a, a meaningful uh, guidepost uh, for uh, uh, folks going through um, all, all manner of uh, personal and, and spiritual uh, challenges uh, uh, and journeys in their life. Um, and so uh, I hope that, uh, that that readers will find it meaningful. You can buy it on Amazon.com. It's this new website. I'm not Never sure heard if of you've it. heard of it. Uh, and, you know, problematics of Amazon aside, uh, that is where you can buy it. Uh, it is, it is, listen to this, Jesse. Uh, it is number 27 in, uh, in, in Amazon's bestsellers in the Hebrew Bible category right now. So, you know, get it while it's hot. I would like to point out that I receive no royalties if people buy your book. 
so they can help you out by buying your book. They can help us both out by uh, subscribing to this podcast, by uh, giving us a five-star ranking, and by commenting uh, and writing a review. That will help spread our podcast, which we also get zero royalties for, uh, to the masses, spread our Torah to the masses. That, that is true. Although I will say, um, I'm also not getting any royalties from the book. Uh, I am uh, giving uh, uh, all proceeds to my congregation, uh, Temple Bethel. So if you uh, uh, want to support the uh, incredible work that, that Temple Bethel is doing in the Richmond, Virginia area, even if you aren't interested in uh, uh, spiritual and moral preparation for Passover and to uh, lead the world to redemption and liberation, um, you could support uh, the good work of Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Excellent. So Jesse, uh, you want to tell us a little bit more about Hunters? Sure. Just uh, a heads up. We're going to be getting into spoilers as always. So this is your spoiler warning. Uh, do not proceed if you have not watched the show. Full disclosure, uh, I've seen all of season one. Mike has only seen a portion of season one. Uh, I will end up spoiling this season for him. If you've seen the full season, you know what I'm talking about. And I look forward to his reaction. Um, but a you, heard, brief... you, heard it, you heard it here first. What, <laughs> what a tease. Spoiling it for me live on the pod. Uh, a brief summary um, this show focuses on the main character of Jonah Heidelbaum. Uh, Jonah is really a code breaker. His mind sees things and he's able to crack codes. Uh, but he's sort of um, um, a young adult, uh, a teenager, graduated high school, smokes a lot of pot, and he lives with his grandmother in the late 70s uh, in Brooklyn. He realizes that his he knows that his grandmother is a survivor of the Shoah, survivor of the Holocaust, uh, and um, he returns home to see that that she had been murdered, uh, and tries to chase down who murdered her. Cannot, and it's at her funeral she meets. Uh, uh, he, he meets his grandmother's old friend, Meyer Offerman, um, who is played by the incredible Al Pacino, uh, the Academy Award winning Al Pacino. Uh, Pacino has never starred in a television show before. This is his first. But I think that there are a lot of similarities to the type of Italian he plays and the type of Jew he plays. We could get into that later. Um, simultaneously, you see an elderly Na uh, NASA scientist. Uh, who was killed in her shower, and you see the Undersecretary of State, uh, played by Dylan Baker, who is having a barbecue in his home in Maryland, and somebody comes to this barbecue and recognizes him that he is a senior Nazi official, and he ends up killing this person, killing his children, killing his wife, because his cover is blown. The show is based on the idea of the true story of Operation Paperclip, when after World War II, in the midst of the Cold War, uh, the United States uh, was worried that Soviet Union would get the bomb um, and obtain nuclear weapons. And they were concerned with where all of these Nazi scientists and engineers would go. And the United States relocated uh, over 1,600 scientists 
who worked for the Nazis, higher up uh, Nazi uh, authority and administrative positions into the United States, many of them responsible for sending a man to the moon. Um, and it's really complicated. And uh, I actually didn't know about that. Maybe that's my own ignorance or my youth. Um, but really pissed me off when I found out that that was a true story. Uh, and they gave them new identities. They gave them citizenship. Uh, and they claim, the United States claims, that they did this to avoid uh, the Soviets getting this technology and getting these brilliant minds. Um, but these are people who should be tried for war crimes. And when, in fact, we gave them citizenship and we gave them promotions and we gave them jobs in our government. Uh, so it's based on that idea when uh, Jonas Safta dies, he meets Meyer Offerman, and he learns that actually they are part of a group of Nazi hunters. Well, his grandmother Ruth and Meyer Offerman are survivors of the Shoah. Uh, included in that group um, are other survivors of the Shoah, Murray and Mindy Markowitz, um, as well as other people who are not. Um, you have... Uh, Ronnie, uh, Lonnie Flash, who is a Jewish actor, Master of Disguise, played by Josh Radner of How I Met Your Mother fame. You have Joe uh, Mizushima, played by um, Louis Ozawa, um, who's a veteran of Vietnam War. Uh, we don't know that he is Jewish. We're not told that he is Jewish. We're not really sure his connection. And Kate Mulvaney, um, who plays Sister Harriet, who's a former uh MI6 operative now working with this hunters group as well. We find out um, later on in the season, first spoiler for you, Mike, because I don't think you've seen this yet. We find out that she was actually Jewish, that she was put on the kinder transport um, from Germany to Great Britain uh, at the very beginning of the war and grew up uh, in a, a parish with other Jewish children and they all grew up as Catholic, taught by nuns in order to be saved from uh, the Nazis. Uh, that story really deeply affected me. A dear family friend, uh, when I was growing up, she was a uh, survivor of the Holocaust and actually also similar situation, grew up in England because her family sent her on the kinder transport. And it wasn't until she was uh, in her late teens that she was reunited with her older sister and one of her parents who survived the Holocaust. Uh, so that is really the basis of this story. It's that there are flashbacks uh, dramatizing what happens in Auschwitz and the experience that these survivors had, uh, specifically Meyer and Ruth and Murray and Mindy uh, and their plans to hunt down different Nazis that they find living amongst us in the United States. The real basis of the, the story um, and what we wrestle with is the concept of revenge. Mike, I know you and I feel differently about this show uh, in general. Some say they're not sure what it's trying to be. Is it trying to be like Inglorious Bastards or is it trying to be like Munich, right? Is it a story right. that it is meant to um, uh, be a bit of satire, right? A, a, a bit of exploitation, or is it meant to be one of redemption and, and, and revenge? And it's unclear. I think it's trying to do both. There's some humor to it, uh, very dark humor. Uh, at some points, it's very graphic and disturbing. At uh, some points, it's quite violent. Um, Mike, tell me your take on the show. Oh, I have feelings, Jesse, about this show. <laughs> 
I so I agree with with what you just said. I think that it is uh, first and foremost to show that um, doesn't really know what it wants to be uh, and uh, doesn't have a very uh, firm sense of about what it wants to say. Uh, it um, you know it, uh, uh, it it raises kind of uh, big you know existential moral ideas in uh, you know very kind of pulpy ham-fisted uh, kind of campy way. way campy way um, I think it's uh, like you you know it you know there, there is there there is clearly debates raging about this about whether it is an homage to uh, filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino and films like Inglorious Bastards uh, or whether it is a derivative knockoff of uh, those things I land uh, very firmly in the second camp I think that it is uh, um, very uh, plainly a derivative knockoff of uh, Quentin Tarantino, a bargain basement Quentin Tarantino, uh, if you if you want my honest opinion, uh, and um, uh, and uh, I think I said this to you, Jesse. I really liked it better uh, when it was called the Hebrew Hammer. Um, you might remember the Hebrew Hammer, uh, a film that came out. Uh, I think when we were in college, right, Jesse? Uh, yeah, it was a stupid. It was a stupid Comedy Central film. <laughs> uh, uh, stupid is subjective. I thought it was a brilliant classic. Um, and, uh, but the idea behind, um, the Hebrew hammer was that, you know, there was 70s black exploitation, uh, and so it was time for Jew exploitation. Uh, and so that was the idea. It used kind of the like black exploitation, uh, tropes, uh, and, uh, styles, uh, but, uh, but like with Jewish humor, uh, and, uh, you know, a story of like kind of, uh, uh, Jewish, uh, power, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and, and. Jewish revenge, uh, and you know, in, in some in so many ways, Hunters reminds me of the Hebrew Hammer. Uh, but the Hebrew Hammer knew that it was making a comedy, uh, and Hunters um, uses comedy, uh, um, or actually, let me rephrase that: Hunters uses the Holocaust um, in order to make a comedy. Um, and uh, um, and and I, I don't think it really does. I think that the comedy to me doesn't generally land. Sometimes it does. Um, I think that uh, its depiction of the Holocaust is um, is is a grotesque distortion. Um, I think that it sensationalizes uh, something that was already unbelievably sensational, uh, so as Fair to point. make it so as to make it um, you know somewhat uh, unbelievable. Uh, and I think that the uh, um, that uh, uh, Auschwitz um, uh, made that very point in its critique of of the show. It said that it gives. Um, license to future Holocaust deniers, right? To say like that, you know, the, the, there's no way that this could have been real. Um, and I, I, I think that that's a really, really uh, worthy point. That's that's worth consideration, worth exploration. That um, you know that that this show, um, you know, trivializes the the Holocaust by sensationalizing it, and it raises issues you know topics moral topics like uh like revenge and uh and the persistence of uh of uh you know uh racial anti-semitic evil uh you know in in ways that uh that, that really minimize them and one of the other things the thing that really i think most bothered me and we can kind of throw this into the mix of the conversation um is one of the things that i've been thinking about a lot lately about the Holocaust and especially in relation to the, the moment we're in, in the U S and, and in the world, um, is what, uh, Hannah Arendt, the, uh, political philosopher, uh, called, um, 
the banality of evil. Um, and, uh, and essentially the, the theory posits that, um, that there, you know, while there were, uh, certain, you know, members of the Nazi regime, um, that were true believers, um, and, uh, virulent and violent anti-Semites, um, uh, that, uh, the, the, the vast preponderance of people who participated in the machinery of Nazi evil, um, were, were, uh, were not, uh, were not in that way ideological. They were they were part of the bureaucratic machinery of the state, or they were uh, the you know the the collaborating uh, governments of, uh, of of neighboring countries. They were the infrastructure of you know the security apparatus and security personnel. They were the average uh, uh, Germans who uh, you know in, in in when when you're uh, wrapped up in um, in uh, in in a in systematic and systemic evil, it is easy to become a cog in that system. Um, and I will say even, some of the, that, that was the defense of some of the Nazis that they caught within the show saying that, you know, I wasn't a Nazi. I was just a scientist. I was just a doctor. Those who were doing terrible, disgusting experiments on Jews, um, torturing Jews, but they were saying that they were doing right. it in the name of science, not in the name of hate, um, right. which, which is a repulsive to me. Right. No, absolutely. So, so, so Hannah Arendt's point is not to excuse any of that behavior. On, on the contrary, right? Her, uh, her argument was um, that you know we. Um, uh, I actually saw echoes of this when I was reading the recent book uh, "White Fragility" um, by Robin DiAngelo. I don't know if you've read it, um, but basically, you know, it's we have this idea of like a you know sort of the, they're good people and they're bad people, right? And bad people are evil. And good people are good. And so when you think about things like racism, is, uh, you know, we like to say, well, like only bad people are racists. I'm a good person and therefore I can't be racist. Right. And so I think that that's that's similar to, uh, um, you know, what what the dynamics in um, in, in, you know, the, the systematic Nazi terror is that there were plenty of people who might have otherwise identified themselves as good people or just, you know, the typical person that nevertheless participated in um, in in, uh, in in the uh, systematic extermination of of six million Jews were part of that system. Uh, again, not that doesn't excuse their behavior, but it is an observation about the about the nature of human behavior. Now, my my point about uh, hunters with that is that um, the way it depicts Nazis is as um, unique monsters. Uh, and I think that um, that that does a disservice to the the memory and the meaning of the Holocaust, because to me, the the challenge of the Holocaust um, is not that it was perpetrated by monsters. It was it's that it was perpetrated by human beings and sure. that um, that that uh, any society um, is potentially at risk of uh, warping in the same way and perpetrating the same kinds of evils. I think that's a, a fair point. Um, I will say, you know, you were you began your your points by talking about this moment that we're at um, in society with this spike in anti-Semitism and bigotry in general. And the character that I found most um, skin crawling was it was not any of the flashbacks to any of the Nazis, um, but the the Greg Austin who plays Travis, right? Travis was the American. Uh, neo-Nazi. He was the one who was totally buying into uh, this, the Nazis' plans, so much so that in this very disturbing scene, uh, about two-thirds of the way through the first season, the colonel, she 
cuts her arm to drip her German blood into a glass of milk to have him drink it so he could have this pure German blood and be authentically a Nazi. Um, and I, I found him to be most disturbing because the things that he was saying, he ends up, another spoiler for you, Mike, he ends up going to jail and he asks for a Jewish uh, attorney. And when he asks for a Jewish attorney, he ends up murdering that Jewish attorney because he thinks everybody seeing him do that will gain a following for him. Um, and he ends up chanting in his jail cell, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us, uh, which are... You, it looks like it was taken right out of what happened in Charlottesville a couple years ago. It was deeply disturbing, really uh, gave me chills. Um, I understand the campy nature of it, uh, and I think that bothered me somewhat, so much so that the, the show sort of jumped the shark a little bit in the campy nature of it. Once we, talk, uh, we, we find out that there's talk about this Fourth Reich that they're trying to build and that they're doing so with um, trying to kill Jews and people of color, those living in urban areas with corn syrup, that they're they're poisoning things that have corn syrup, shipping things in from South America. That was the whole role of Dylan Baker's character as the Undersecretary of State, trying to uh, get rid of this trade embargo with South America so that this stuff could be brought into the States and they could put it in these drinks that, uh, you know, presumably Jews and people of color will drink and kill them. Uh, it brings in, this is the nature of historical fiction, right? It brings in the New York City blackout of 77 and using that blackout as the excuse to bring these goods in without them being checked by customs or border enforcement uh, so all of that is sort of really campy and jumping the shark. But the whole basis of the show is the idea of revenge. And it really forced me to think a lot about what um, Judaism says about revenge, what our tradition says about revenge, and my own personal thoughts uh, about revenge, which I, I really wrestled with. Um, you know, in, in the first show... Maya Offerman in the first episode says to Jonah, says, you know, the Talmud says living well is the best revenge. But actually, he says, that's not true. Revenge is the best revenge. The single greatest gift of the Jewish people is our capacity to remember. And it's because of our memory that we know that this is our survival. This is not murder, what we're trying to do. I, I ha really had to wrestle with that idea. Um, even... Mossad, right? They weren't they weren't assassinating Nazis. They were capturing them so that they could be brought to justice, um, bringing them back to Israel or to um, other parts, right? The Nuremberg trials, right? Other parts of the world so that they could be tried for their war crimes so that they couldn't stay in hiding. This idea of murdering them in cold blood as revenge. I don't know, Mike, what are your thoughts on that? What do you say Judaism says about that? I would say that that it's uh, it's complicated. On the one hand, uh, the Torah says um, uh, explicitly, right? Uh, 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 don't bear a grudge and don't take vengeance. Uh, it's a, a verse away from one of the most famous verses in all the Torah, which <laughs> is uh, <laughs> right: love love your neighbor as yourself. I, I am the Lord, right? So, um, on, on the one hand, it seems you know pretty cut and dry. 
uh, in, in Judaism. Uh, on the other hand, we have, uh, you know, passages uh, in the Torah and, and in, uh, in, in other sacred texts that, uh, that, that call for vengeance, right? So we're, we're recording this podcast today on the holiday of, of Purim. Uh, and the, uh, the, the Purim story itself, uh, you know, uh, essentially uh, uh, cer- uh, celebrates uh, an act of vengeance of the, of the Jews against the, uh, against the Persians. Um, it is uh, contextualized in Jewish tradition um, as, you know, a, a, a battle in the ongoing war uh, between the Jewish people and the uh, ancient nation of Amalek. Which had, uh, which originally confronted the children of Israel after uh, they uh, leave Egypt, uh, and uh, in, in the two places in the Torah, in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy, where that uh, battle with Amalek, that original battle with Amalek, is mentioned, it says that um, uh, that you know God will be at war with Amalek forever in Exodus, in Exodus, uh, and then uh, and then it says in, in Deuteronomy, uh, you shall utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Uh, do not forget. Uh, uh, and that uh, idea is interpreted and reinterpreted within Jewish tradition, even as early as the Bible itself. In the book of Samuel, uh, uh, the prophet Samuel goes to King Saul and says, it's time to um, exact God's vengeance on Amalek. Right? And so Saul, uh, this is a really powerful story, uh, because Saul kind of sees this and, and says, you know, we're, th- these people aren't threatening us. Right there, there we're, we're sort of, you know, they may have been our historical enemies, but we're essentially peacefully coexisting uh, with them at the moment. You know, uh, why should we go make war? And Samuel says, this is what God wants, is what God demands, vengeance against Amalek. Um, so Saul uh, leads a campaign against Amalek, uh, slaughters uh, the, uh, all of the uh, men of the, of the nation, uh, but, uh, uh, but spares the women and children and, and, uh, and, and uh, property and the king named Agag. Uh, and, uh, and, and Samuel is furious with Saul, right? Saul comes back and someone, you know, it's that he spared the, like, the king, right? Right, right. So, but first, what I love about the story is that uh, Saul goes back to Samuel and says, I did what you asked me to do. And Samuel says, oh yeah, well, what is that bleeding of lambs that I hear, right? Uh, and uh, it's this like very like, um, you know, kind of catty moment between Samuel and Saul that, uh, that, that I just kind of think is a, 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 a very charming moment in the, in, in the book of Samuel. Uh, but right, he spares the king. Uh, and because of that, because he spared the king, um, he, Saul is deposed from the kingship because he was unable and unwilling to carry out God's vengeance against Amalek. Uh, and uh, uh, according to the book of Esther, uh, or the interpretation of the book of Esther, that uh, Haman, the villain of the story, is, re- is referred to as Ha'agagi, the Agagite. So tradition regards him as being a descendant of this king Agag of Amalek that uh, Saul had spared. And because Saul had spared this king, um, that, uh, that, that uh, his descendants were able to uh, continue uh, wreaking havoc against the Jewish people. So that points, I think, you know, one of the messages there of, of uh, Jewish tradition uh, points, I think, in favor of, you know, of these kind of uh, perpetual, unsparing uh, battles against certain kinds of enemies, um, that unless you wipe them all out, right, unless you, like, utterly blot out the vengeance, or unless you utterly blot out the evil, um, it will keep on uh, reemerging to, uh, to, to threaten you. So if you use that as the, you know, analogy, 
analogy uh, of uh, of the Nazi evil, uh, then it you know uh, gives kind of moral cover to uh, what the characters in, in Hunters are, are trying to do. And they say, well, like, what's really know, interesting, Mike, right? If we look at uh, Megillat Esther, and this is the part that we don't teach in Hebrew school, this is the part that we skim over, it's not that uh, Haman was killed, it's not that Zeresh, his wife, who helped him plot this, was killed, it's not even that uh, his ten sons were killed, but what ends up happening then within Shushan itself, what do right, they do? Right. They end up killing... Um, Right, something like 300 people. And then what ends up happening after that? Outside of Shushan, 75,000 of their quote-unquote enemies, they end up killing proactively, um, lest they end up carrying forward and carrying on Haman's plan. The Jews end up killing 75,000 people because Haman plotted to kill the Jews of Shushan. And that's the part that we don't really talk about because it's disturbing and makes us uncomfortable, and it talks about the challenges with vengeance. Right, absolutely, right? Uh, You know, and so in a a kind of more universalistic time uh, that we live in, the context of the uh, uh, the, authorship of of the Book of Esther is much more particularistic, right? It's a, it's a, a story, maybe an imagination of, uh, of Jewish power in an age of Jewish powerlessness uh, uh, that, uh, that makes us really uncomfortable, uh, and maybe rightly so, uh, in our time, which is um, an era of, of Jewish power that, um, that is really kind of unprecedented in, in at least 2,000 years of, of Jewish history. So that's also in the, in the mix of issues when we talk about the um, vengeance, um, is it's, you know, it's one thing to um, imagine or teach about the um, uh, about the the righteousness of vengeance when you don't actually have the capacity to carry it out. But when you do have the capacity to carry it out, it actually becomes another moral consideration altogether. Um, the other issue here, Jesse, that that you point out uh, is, um, you know, what's the difference between uh, between vengeance and justice, and what's the difference between you know killing and and murder. Uh, or murder and killing, right? And uh, you know, and and so you know, we you know, we would say that um, a person who is captured by the uh, by the Mossad and, and brought to a court in Jerusalem, like uh, Adolf Eichmann was, right? That that's and then hanged. Um, that's justice. But if the Mossad was to have killed Eichmann on the streets of uh, um, Buenos Aires, uh, that would have been murder, right? Um, uh, and uh, uh, or that would have been. Uh, that would have been vengeance, right? And that would, it would, you know, it's killing when he's hanged after a trial, and murder when he's when he's shot in the street. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that um, you know, one of the things that that hunters, I think, um, uh, does is it it muddies those waters a little bit um, in in a really interesting way. I don't think hun- I think hunters borrows. Uh, this is where I think it's kind of derivative. Is that you know it, it very self consciously borrows from like superhero. Uh, uh, genre uh, and, and Batman in particular, um, uh, 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 jo- the character Jonah uh, keeps on uh, referring to Al Pacino's character, at least in the episodes I saw, as uh, as Bruce Wayne, right, living in you know being like the wealthy bankroller of these uh, of these vigilantes. Um, but that theme is explored, you know, very heavily in the context of Batman, which is you know like w- you know what gives Batman the right. Um, to uh, to to hunt down um, and, uh, and and punish criminals like that should be the the job of the state. And Batman's argument is um, that the state is ineffective and untrustworthy, 
right? And, or in the, uh, in the and, flip side, right? Well, Commissioner Gordon sends out the bat signal. The flip side is Spider-Man, where the news media calls Spider-Man a vigilante, and Spider-Man is is um, the enemy of the people because he's going off on his own and not trusting um, law enforcement to do their job. Right. But, you know, I, I think that to me, Jesse, and, and you can tell me what you think about this. I mean, I, 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 my understanding of the Jewish tradition is that um, uh, it does err more on the side of that, you know, original teaching of the Torah that, uh, that, that, that um, we, we are not uh, uh, interpersonally permitted to take vengeance. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and I, I mean, I think that that can be, you know, really challenging I and mean, that can be challenging in our, in our personal lives. Like we, you know, we want to, you know, whatever, uh, flip off the person that cut us off on the road, right. Which is a, a an act of vengeance or at least an act of retaliation. That's a, a minor one. Um, but the, the impulse to vengeance, um, rises all the time. Um, it's, it's actually a, you know, uh, we like to think of it as like a sinful thing because it's uh, regarded in the Torah as something that we're not allowed to do. But um, it, uh, from the point of view of uh, evolutionary uh, uh, psychology, uh, that we, we have a revenge instinct and there are good reasons to take revenge, uh, at least from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, taking revenge uh, signals to the person that you're taking revenge against um, that they can't act the way that they acted towards you anymore. And it signals to the wider population uh, that you are not the kind of person um, that will be, uh, that will, that will take abuse lying down. So, um, so, you know, I think that that's uh, one of the arguments that I think that the, that, that the hunters would make for the kind of vengeance that they're carrying out um, is that they, you know, are, are meaning to demonstrate uh, that, um, you know, that you can't, uh, commit a crime against the Jewish people with impunity. Well, I think their idea of vengeance is really based on the biblical command of ayin tachat ayin, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. Um, the Talmudic rabbis are so uncomfortable with this idea that the right. entire section of, of Mishnah and, and Gemara of Nezikin of damages is really based on a reinterpretation of this biblical right. command that eye for an eye is not really you poked out my eye, so I am obligated to poke out your eye, which is the essence of revenge. But really, I deserve monetary compensation for the damages that you caused. Um, you poked out my eye and so you have to pay me for my eye and my eye may be more valuable than somebody else's eye, depending right. on how dependent I am on it, my eyesight to uh, provide for myself and for my family. Right. My left arm is not worth as much as Sandy Koufax's left arm, for example. Uh, but that that sort of mentality. Uh, don't sell yourself short, Jesse. I appreciate it. Um, what I find most interesting, this is going to be another spoiler for you, Mike. Um but in season, in episode six, when Murray and Mindy's daughter uh, gets married um, at the wedding, there are these flashbacks that are going back and forth. And this is actually one of the scenes that I found most disturbing. It's when their, their son um, is on the train in the cattle car with them. We, we didn't hear of a son before. We only heard of their daughter who's getting married. So clearly, you know what's going to happen to their son, um, which is what happened to 
most children who ended up in concentration camps and they get off the train at Auschwitz and they say women and children on one side, men on another side. And, and you know, right, the women and children are, are, are likely going to end up going to the showers, going to end up being gassed. Um, and the father, Murray, wouldn't give up, wouldn't let go of their son, Aaron. And so one of the SS guards uh, pointed a gun at their son's head and shot him while he was in his father's arms. Um, and, and to me, maybe as a parent, that hit me harder, um, seeing the murder of a young child. I'm not sure. Um, but as a wedding present, this is where it gets sort of gross and, and uncomfortable. Um, as a wedding present, um, Harriet finds the Nazi that shot and killed their son, Aaron, captures him, puts him in their trunk, and delivers him to Murray and Mindy as a wedding present so that they could have vengeance. Um, and they go through this whole process, this whole period, um, and in the end, um, she ends up just shooting him a single bullet in, in the head. Um, not torturing him like you saw with some of the other Nazis. Um, and they say, you know, they waited all these years and, and vengeance was over in a single bullet. Uh, part of that happened. This is another spoiler alert for you, Mike. Um, Murray ends up dying. Uh, there's an explosion in the subway because the Nazis planted a, a bomb in the subway. Uh, and Murray um, and Jonah and Lonnie end up clearing out the subway cars. Murray's trying to um, to disarm the bomb, and it ends up exploding, and he is killed. And part of it is Mindy doesn't want to live a- anymore. She really struggles with what's the point of life without her partner. That also hit me really hard, the act of mourning um, and losing your, your life's partner. They've gone through so much together. They, they survived the Shoah together. Uh, and... He ends up dying hunting Nazis. And, um, but she takes mercy on this Nazi. Once her husband dies, it's not worth the fight any longer for her. Uh, and the, the idea that was it worth it, all this seeking revenge, and it's over in a single bullet, it, it really brings the question of revenge and what is revenge and is revenge worth it in, into context. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for the spoilers, uh, first of all. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, to me, uh, um, the movie, the Spielberg movie that you referenced before, Munich, um, you know, really you know, wrestled with these questions um, a lot more effectively and poignantly than, than, than Hunter's does. I mean, I think the part well, of that's that meant is to be that- a drama, not meant to be this campy show. Well, I understand, but like you know, when you're dealing with themes like these, um, uh, you know, I think that you got to either decide like you're dealing with them, um, and that you're going to like deal them with the deal, with, you know, treat them with the with the seriousness that they deserve, um, you know, or 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 you're going to make a comedy, right? And that's not to say that comedies can't be like insightful, um, but uh, but but I think that part of the problem with Hunters is that it like like skips around between different different tones and um you know different genres um so willy-nilly that it doesn't really have a clear sense of of what it is you know like there was i i, I like i i i watched i think it was in the third episode there was like you know uh randomly 
um, a like uh, disco scene on uh, the like Coney Island boardwalk to um, uh, to Stan Alive, a really bad cover of Stan Alive, um, and, um, and like a musical number, and it's just like I, I didn't even know what I was watching anymore. It did not land for me. Um, but but Munich, I think you know, wrestled with the with this idea of um, uh, of a um, you know, how um, dissatisfying revenge actually ends up being. Uh, sure. and, and, and B, um, how um, uh, revenge perpetuates um, a never-ending cycle of violence. Um, and that's, that's, I think, one of the, the biggest challenges um, is, you know, um, the, you know in, in Hunters, right, if, if what they're doing is, you know, is, uh, um, you know, holding people accountable for um, for the crimes that they committed, which which I think is an admirable desire, um, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, in their doing that, um, they exacerbate a you know sort of ground war with uh, with American Nazis um, that uh, that who knows you know leads to um, the radicalization of. Um, of other anti-Semites that le- leads to the death of more Jews, right? Uh, uh, you know, one. one yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting point based based on that, right? Jonah at the end of the the season, Jonah has uh, Travis, this neo-Nazi, uh, this acolyte, right? He's there at gunpoint, and Millie, the FBI agent who stumbles upon this whole idea of the Fourth Reich, uh, stops him. She says, you don't have to do this. Let me take care of it, and I will put him to jail, and, and justice will take care of this. And what ends up happening, well, he's in a jail cell, he murders a lawyer, and he um, gets all of these other inmates to hear him chant, Jews will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, and in some ways... By him not being killed, by him being imprisoned, he ignites this anti-Semitism within them as well because hate does not discriminate. It's not that bigotry and uh, ever ceases to exist, but right, if you don't, right, that's the question that we're left wondering. If you don't kill him, does it, right? If we just say, okay, these are rats who belong in the sewer, eventually the rats crawl out of the sewer bigotry is on the rise now because we've told the rats we, we, we've told those who think such hate is okay to express in public they don't have to stay in the sewer yeah i mean listen it's a it's a it's a really good point there was this uh, moment in i think it was the third episode where uh josh radner is um it's like a cutaway you know to like an imaginary like psa that he that his character is doing with uh with with a young girl and it's like how to spot a Nazi, you know, in, in America today. And the girl keeps on saying white people. Um, right. And, uh, and, you know, that, that, uh, that, that hit me hard. And there's, there's a way in which, um, like, I, I feel that, you know, really acutely now. I walk, you know, that, uh, that, that what has sort of emerged in this moment when, um, when anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry have become kind of so prevalent um, is that, um, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to kind of really encounter just about anybody these days um, without um, without uh, worrying about you know uh, the the um, the prejudices uh, that they that they harbor and what they might uh, uh, do with them. Um, but I think you're right. I think that the question here, though, is Jesse, like, is you know, is anti-Semitism um, a 
a virus, right? You know, some people have taken uh, to calling it like the bug in the software of the West, right? So is it a virus? Is it a bug in the software? And that, and in that way, right? If you if you can if you can give everyone the vaccine, um, or you know, or or create the the most effective treatment, um, or or kill the hosts, right? You can eradicate the virus. Um, and I just don't think uh, uh, hatred works that way. Um, so I, I, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if I love the an analogy of rats in the sewer, um, especially because of the, you know, flip side of those overtones um, that that have been used against us. But, um, uh, but, uh, but I, but I, I just, I, I wonder, like, if, if what, you know, th- this moment that we're in has made me wonder, you know, is the best that we are able to do um, have, you know, people in power. Uh, um, and, you know, generally speaking, people of conscience, um, uh, you know, on, on our side and on the side of, uh, of other vulnerable and marginalized and targeted uh, and historically oppressed groups to say that, um, you know, you may, you may secretly feel this way. Uh, we can't stop you from secretly feeling this way, uh, but don't bring it into public. Right. And it will be not, it will not be tolerated in, in the public sphere. Like, I don't know. I long for those days, right? Where, where like, where, I, I don't know, but, just... but what ends up happening, right, in this show, the I, I know it's meant to be uh, fiction, but the Undersecretary of State was one of these Operation Paperclip Nazis who infiltrates the government, and, and there's there's a a conversation that happens. I, I guess I think it's um, episode. Nine, maybe the very beginning, one of these again, fake documentaries, black and white, where where episode nine um, begins with this roundtable discussion of the war departments and, and um, right the, the CIA, all, all these different arms of the government deciding debating the reasons why they should bring over the Nazis to the United States, uh, and it's to make sure that the Soviet Union doesn't get it uh, get them. And they're joking. They're saying, uh, saying, "Yeah, the they committed these war crimes, but they were only Jews, not people." Uh, and that concludes a couple of minutes later with the screen saying, "Yeah, that shit really happened, uh, right?" So I, I well, wonder hold if on those one people. Hold on in... one I, the, that exact conversation happened, or I, I mean, it's the, dramatizing or... and fictionalizing the conversation, but the conversation that happened that that you had to condone. Uh, and be okay with some level of bigotry if those in positions of power brought these Nazis over, 1,600 Nazis over in Operation Paperclip. So I, I get I'm what not, you're saying. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that, like, th- this is the problem with the show, right? And this is what I think what the, what, what the Auschwitz uh, Memorial Foundation was saying was the problem with the show is that, like, it, 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 it doesn't actually... Um, uh, elucidate the history, it muddies the history, because I have a hard time believing, um, I mean, it could very well be, who knows? I mean, they're, they're certainly, you know, you don't need me to, like, go and out uh, all of the, you know, uh, avowed and secret anti-Semites that have been in uh, the seats of American power in the history of the country. Like, there's no question about that. But but I, I just have a hard time believing that, and, and in part because um, Nazis didn't only kill Jews, right? They also killed tens and thousands of American soldiers, right? So um, I, I just have a hard time believing that the American government would, like, would, would, would uh, respond, would, would be weighing the consideration about, whether, uh, about resettling Nazi scientists in America and saying, yeah, but they only killed Jews. 
Um, I just I just don't believe that that conversation happened like that. Um, I think that sure, they, well, that's fair, but, but I, I think I think, the I think, point of I think it. what I would no, I think you know what I would say. I think that it's much more. Com- I mean, I, it's uncomfortable, right? And I'm, and you know, you like sort of like you know talking about it on the fly like, like this. Um, I I can you know I can sort of like you know it's the same question of like should the U.S. have bombed Auschwitz, um, and I or think at least bombed the train tracks or the train tracks. Um, I think, and I think it's a complicated question. You know, I'm not a military strategist. Um, I'm not a diplomat. Um, I wasn't there at the time. Uh, and I don't know what the, what the actual impact of doing that, uh, would have been, whether it would have would been have, net- It would have saved at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. I, I don't think it's complicated at all. It's because the, <laughs> it, it's, it's because of Jew, it's because it was Jews and, um, to a lesser extent, Catholics who were not in power or in positions of power then, um, uh, the disabled community, gypsies, the LGBT community. Jesse, I'm not so sure you're right about that. Um, I, think that uh, I, I think that there are uh, plenty of, of, of perfectly legitimate uh, military reasons to, to decide not to engage in that kind of campaign. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily the right decision that the, the, the American government made, and I certainly see the argument that you're making. Um, you know, uh, I, all I'm saying is, you know, is it uh, inherently, was it inherently wrong, regardless of what any of the potential benefits of doing it and the potential downsides of not doing it would have been to resettle Nazi scientists in America to work uh, for NASA. Um, I, I, I am not uh, certain that my answer is that it is unquestionably wrong. I think it was inherently wrong. These are people that, that should have been, I'm not saying we should have killed them, murdered them like, uh, these Nazi hunters did, but they should be tried for the war crimes that that they helped, uh, that they were a part of, that they were responsible for, that they helped commit. Um, if you want to share your thoughts with Mike, that's at Rabbi Knopf on Twitter. <laughs> um, if if you disagree with him, um, uh, it, it's 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 really uh, I I I don't think it's as complicated. I think it's more complicated because it's a part of our country's history and it happens not as crazy as the show makes it seem, but certainly Operation Paperclip happened and we need to deal with that and wrestle with that. I, I don't know if, you know, we're not going to come to a conclusion, Mike, and we're not going to come up with an answer. Um, but I, I think it's clear that the idea of revenge in Judaism is complicated. Do you have any last thoughts on what we're supposed to do with that revenge with, with our, our, our need for revenge? You know, so uh, there's a really great book that I read uh, called um, uh, Beyond Revenge or Beyond Vengeance um, came out a few years ago and it talks about how, you know, revenge is a, is a, an instinct that, um, that, that we, you know, we, we evolved to, um, to possess, um, is present in, you know, in our, in our, uh, uh, primate, uh, relatives as well. Um, and there are good evolutionary reasons why we have it. And, um, it makes, you know, several arguments about, you know, overcoming it. That's more than, that are more, that are beyond just the morality of, you know, revenge is bad and okay, don't, don't do it. Um, and what it argues is that when, when uh, people see themselves as, uh, as members of the same uh, tribe or team or family, they're less likely to take revenge against each other. Um, and so I think that, to me, the answer uh, of, of vengeance is, um, 
uh, is more uh, cooperation, more understanding, uh, and uh, uh, more uh, you know less tribalism uh, between people. Um, I, you know, I think that normally people look at uh, you know revenge as sort of the opposite of forgiveness, but I'm not sure that necessarily you know, in, the, in the context that we're talking about for Nazis, for for the hunter, for hunters. I'm not sure that forgiveness is the right answer either. Like I, you know, I no. think to your to your point before, um, I think that to me, justice would be um, the the right answer rather than uh, vengeance. Um, and again, now I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with the American government's decision to resettle Nazis. I'm just saying that um, that that uh, I suspect, not knowing the full history of it, um, that it is um, uh, more complicated and, and less black and white. Um, but, um, uh, you know, so I think that, that, that to me, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the issue of vengeance, you know, to wh where Jewish tradition would want to go with it is to, um, have, um, have reliable and trustworthy, um, institutions of justice, um, that, uh, uh that have the, you know, reach to catch everybody who, uh, um, who, who transgresses, um, and, uh, uh, is you know is um, has sort of like impeccable authority um, among people to to be able to hold people accountable and for nobody to doubt uh, that uh, that they're they're doing it properly. I think that we're far away from that in our world today, um, and I you know I think that we were probably a far away uh, from having that in in our world back then. Um, but to me, uh, institutions of justice, systems of justice um, that are that are uh, honest and trustworthy and uh, and just. Um, are um, one of the ways uh, beyond the cycle of revenge. I think one of the reasons why revenge is a part of our mindset is also because of um, the scars that we have in our communal history uh, as a people. Um, we our, our story is constantly a story of victimhood, and I think the victimhood of the Holocaust stays with us in so many of the decisions we make as a people today are because of those scars that still seem so fresh. Um, and, and they're fresh as, as long as there are survivors or descendants of survivors of the Shoah, uh, those scars seem fresh. I think, you know, one of the reasons why I enjoyed this show is because as crazy as it was, these hunters were heroes and it turned the story, which was a story of victimhood on its head. Um, even if we say revenge is wrong, it empowered us and saying that we're not always victims. We could be heroes, even if what they did was wrong. You know that I'll leave that up to uh, our listeners to decide. Um, <laughs> but 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 I think there is that they are power. Gonna be, they are going to be all in my mentions. <laughs> I, I think there is uh, power uh, in turning our stories of victimhood stories that are too often about us being victims on its head. Um, I want to conclude Mike with this idea of, of Amalek though, that you mentioned initially when talking about Puram, we, we read, we, we read on Shabbat before Puram on Shabbat Zahor, we read about Amalek specifically and we're told two commands. We're told Timche, we're told to erase Amalek and Lo Tishchach, right? Um, don't forget. Uh, and they seem like they're, opposing commands how do we erase their memory and not forget their memory and i think it's our balance between having these memories define the 
the decisions we make and the steps we take in life going forward, but they can't be the only thing that defines us. Our lives cannot be defined by the scars of our past, but we have to also acknowledge that the scars of our past, of course, influence our future. And it's constantly a balancing act. Um, we are survivors. Uh, our, our ancestors are survivors of the Shoah, but we as Jews are survivors of time and time again. The old joke of every holiday meal is they tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. That is very much a part of our narrative. I know that that's a generalization and a, a, a <clears throat> pediatric generalization, but that's certainly a part of our, our, our narrative. Um, and we need to find a balancing act between Timche, between erasing that memory and not having that define us and Lo Tishkach, not forgetting it lest we let this fourth Reich uh, rise up and have it repeat itself. Well, let me just add on to that because I think that, you know, what our tradition uh, has us do with holding that memory of our trauma um, and what we do with, with our survival um, is to, um, in, is to um, studiously avoid becoming like our enemies, right? The, the Torah says um, that, uh, we're, you know, do not hate an Egyptian in, in your heart, right? Which is a surprising thing to say, considering what the Egyptians did to, uh, uh, the very people who were commanded that, right? But the idea is that, you know, it, it's not what, uh, uh, Al Pacino's character says that, you know, I don't even think the Talmud says that the best revenge is, uh, is, uh, is what does he say? The best revenge is living well. Uh, he said, he claims that the Talmud says that living well is the best revenge. Yeah. I'm not, um, sure that, I'm not sure that the Talmud actually says that. But right, what, what but, that, I, but that's what he claims. But then he says, actually, yeah. the best revenge is revenge. Right, but what, but what, uh, what I think that uh, our tradition says is that um, uh, it's not a question of what's the best revenge, uh, but, uh, but, but what should we become um, knowing what our history has been, right? And, uh, and that, I think, is the challenge of, of, uh, of, of the Jewish people is what will we be knowing where we've been? Uh, and uh, and what will we refuse to be knowing where we've been? Um, what you raised about Al Pacino is a really important point. At some point, we're going to have to come to terms with this, Jesse. Um, but we need to talk about whether non-Jews playing Jewish characters in very stereotypical Jewish ways um, is cultural appropriation uh, and, uh, and anti-Semitism. But that may be a conversation for another time. That is a, a fair point. Certainly a conversation for another time. Until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care.